The Creative Relay is recorded, mixed and mastered at Smith & Western Studios. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to smithandwestern.com.au and get your first episode produced for free. Even before we're born, we connect with the world around us through the vibration of sound. It shapes our experiences, triggers memories and elicits emotions. So what better way to connect with your audience than through something as primal and powerful as sound? At SW Sonic Branding, our team of musicians, composers, sound designers and music strategists create vibrant sonic palettes for brands looking to be heard. SW Sonic Branding. We hear you. I'm Paul Dunn and welcome to the Creative Relay. In this episode, Justine Armour from Grey New York talks to one of the creatives that most inspires her, passing on the baton in the creative relay. Justine Armour, welcome back to the Creative Relay. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, It's taken us a minute because of all of our various lockdowns around the world and all kinds of things, but I'm really happy we're able to finally do this. Yes, it's very good to see your face over the uh, screen. So now tell us, as is the, the way of what we do here, you have to bring on a guest to pass on the Relay Baton to. So who have you got waiting in the virtual lobby for us? The last time I spoke to Scott uh, and he had talked to me about how people in his agency and people that he knew in Sydney had really wanted to hear from a woman on his interview. And so he and I got to talk about that. And then I thought I would take the opportunity to speak to another woman um, and somebody that I have in immense respect for and I look up to and also look across at because she's my kind of twin in um, my job is uh, Chief Creative Officer at Grey New York and she's my sort of twin across the seas at Grey in London. It's the mind-blowing Laura Jordan Baumbach. She is the president and CCO of Grey London. She started there in May 2020, which is, we know how that felt, the moment around the world. She was the co-founder and CCO of Mr. President, an agency that she started, a creative agency in London for six years that the drum named Agency of the Year and Ad Age named International Small Agency of the Year while she was a leader. She has been the president of DNAD. She has twice been named one of Britain's most influential people in Debrett's. Guardian has called her a digital female icon. Uh, she is a Campaign UK female frontier honoree for championing change. She is a co-founder of the Great British Diversity Experiment and of She Says, which is a network of women in the creative industries, uh, which now has over 40,000 members. She recently started another organisation called OCO, which is, as I understand, a mentorship organisation to accelerate historically underrepresented and excluded talent into the ad business. She is a trained taxidermist and I also... Uh, we are on the board of um, the creative global creative board of Grey Together. I can tell you she is an absolute beacon of positivity and optimism and joy. And she's an Aussie. Let's get Laura in there. 
Welcome, Laura. Hi. <laughs> Lovely to be here. Hello, Laura, and welcome. It's delightful to have you here. Thank you very much. It's really nice to be here. And thank you, Justine. I know it's been a bit of a mission getting us all together in our various time zones and massive jobs that we have. And I think having the listeners in Australia hear from an Aussie who's doing a huge creative job internationally, I think is going to be awesome for everyone. And I know Laura's got an amazing, awesome story that I can't wait to hear from her. And I also can't wait for everyone to know her. It always makes me a little bit kind of embarrassed talking about myself. Mm. So thank you for doing it for me. I have to say, like, one of the best things when I got to Grey was actually meeting Justine and going, oh, my God, it's another awesome Aussie woman. <laughs> this is fantastic. Um, it, you know, is one of the, the the many, many reasons actually why I, I love my job. So thank you. Did you two know each other beforehand or did you only met through Grey? No, like I knew of Justine, but I'd never, ever met her. So weirdly, right, because most senior women in the industry know everyone else because there aren't a huge number of us, but we just never had the chance to meet. Yeah, I think we almost had, I mean, we started our careers at the same time. We both kind of had quite different careers to land in the places that we are now. We both have pink hair. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, I really feel like Laura's me living in an, another dimension. Um, yeah. We have, we've finally crossed paths. Yeah, I think, you know, I've just, it's been honestly having someone, you know, that I feel like is kind of like me across the pond or whatever we say. Like, I feel like that, yeah. that has actually been a huge motivator to me to know that there's another the woman in this like literally in the same job in a different country exactly like from the same place that I can go hey uh, what would you do like in this situation if this was you what would you do you know and have a proper Mm. open conversation about it it's great so I want to ask you what are the career highlights you know in your mind what are the the things that have really given you the most juice yeah you know I, I guess I've had a few that have really stood out I think Moving to London, like going way, way back, moving to London was a a big thing for me. And we can talk about how I I got here later, but it was working for the agency that I always wanted to work for in the role that I always wanted to have after a lot of hard work kind of getting there. So to arrive in London going, you know, oh my God, this is the dream. And then to have it all fall apart six months later because of the dot-com crash. You know, that for me, I think really made me feel like the thing that I wanted to do could be maybe the thing that I was good at. So I think, you know, going way back, absolutely that. Obviously, being Dean AD president was just wild. And I learned mm-hmm. so much that year. You know, I'm, I've always been very passionate, as you can probably hear, about uh, diversity and inclusion, about listening to other points of view. And I think that was a great opportunity to do that, to meet and really mm-hmm. delve into other cultures around the world, other creative cultures, and get much more of a global view of what's going on rather than a kind of a Western view of what's cool and what's not cool. So that, for me, I think was a real highlight Obviously, starting my own agency, because why not? And have some modicum of success as well, because, you know, I think most agencies that, little agencies that start fail in the first couple of years, and it's still going really strong. Just felt like the entire world is your oyster and you can do whatever you want. Mm. And then you suddenly realise that running your own business, you absolutely can't do whatever you want. And actually, everything that you do is sort of to make sure that everyone else can do whatever they want. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and you take up the rest. And then, you know, I would say coming to Grey, right? Like a mm-hmm. big, big role, big like, opportunity to do things differently and to kind of shake things up. And I'm absolutely loving what I'm doing at the moment. So I think those four points for me are the, those kind of key points in my career. 
Yeah. Tell me what you love the most about it. I'm really lucky because also there are a lot of people that fall out of the industry at our level and not just women, but a lot of people get burnout or they realize they don't love what they do anymore. And I just, I really enjoy it. Like I enjoy working with brands and I enjoy creating work and making the work better. Mm -hmm. I just, it's just something that I absolutely love. I I have this real passion that creativity is this, I guess it's, it's the human force in order to create change in the world, right? It's where innovation comes mm-hmm. from it's it, everything that we've ever done as human beings really creativity is that that center point and as people who are creative we've got this ability to set a view of the future for the world and maybe make a bit mm-hmm. of a positive difference in what we do and I kind of started off in fine art and doing quite political very conceptual fine art a lot around sort of gender and feminism and, and sexuality and all those kinds of areas and and obviously with she says but what I realized really early on is it's a lot faster to make positive change in the roles that we have because we have access and the skills to communicate really broadly to lots of people. You know, our job is to mm-hmm. inspire people or to change people's hearts and minds or to make them fall in love with something at scale with a budget, with a bunch of other people who also want to do it. So it's a perfect job for me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel the same way. I've always felt immensely privileged to be able to do this, to get, you know, I never, I came from a really blue collar background and, you know, I never imagined that I would get to do something like this for a career and to be around the kinds of people that I get to be around. It's interesting, yeah. just because you made the same point when Scott talked to you that, that Laura just made about, you know, just being able to work on these brands. It's a real privilege that you do have that opportunity mm-hmm. to get out there and say something with scale. Mm-hmm. It's just very interesting that you both said about why you love your job so much. Yeah, Maybe it's because coming from Australia, you don't maybe don't feel that sense of scale. And then you come to these sort of big markets and you're like, holy shit, I'm really talking to hundreds of millions of people with this work. Uh-huh. And sometimes, uh, you know, and sometimes even more, right? I think we're both in a situation where we're running a lot of global work and it's an opportunity actually to talk to the world more or less, which is wonderful. Tell me, Laura, what has been the biggest difference between coming from a place that's your own Mm -hmm. into into grey? How have you coped with that? You know what? I don't think it's a matter of coping. I think even if it's your own place, right, you don't own people You just kind of borrow them for a time when that time is right. And the exciting thing about coming to Grey is I've been able to take everything that that I've learnt in those years running my own place and put them to work in a big place and actually see a lot of positive change and go, oh, yeah, that thing that I thought probably worked with, you know, 40 people, 50 people, whatever, oh, it really does work. And you don't realise how much you know running your own business about the business side of it. So I've got those two hats, Mm -hmm. kind of the, the CCO and the president hat. You know, and to realise, oh, I can actually be part of making a business financially viable as well. You know, I can be a part of changing the culture. I can be a part of putting structures and processes in place that will make business better. Whereas just with the with the creative hat on, and even in my in my own business, although I was part of those conversations, that wasn't my job. So, but because mm-hmm. it was so small and it was my business, you sort of pick it up via osmosis, I guess. So that's been really exciting because I've got, wow, I I do know how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's so interesting, especially now as you're coming out of this moment and really needing to sort of look at the way agencies are shaped and structured and how they work. You coming to it as a creative leader, but with business credibility, I've done it like this. I know how it works. 
Yeah. I think for a lot of creative leaders, it's a theory mm-hmm. and you and you don't necessarily carry the weight of somebody who's run their own thing. I really hope it helps to make a difference in the industry where, in a way, I really feel like creativity is being sidelined. And in mm-hmm. a way, the creatives are protected. It's like, oh, you don't need to know about the budget because that might ruin your ideas. Or, uh, you know, somehow having a business head gets in the way of you having a creative head. There's a real, like this, you know, mm-hmm. kind of myth of this natural creative genius that will be like blocked by serious stuff. And so we're protected from mm-hmm. it in a way. And actually we should be at the center of those decisions because we know best what is going to make the best work. What makes you specifically good at this in a way that others are not? What makes you a good leader? I think firstly, my passion, which I'm sure everyone can kind of hear. And, you know, and I know that we both have in spades. I think secondly, I guess my background in a way and always feeling slightly, I call it, um, you know, I've always been very comfortable being uncomfortable, but I've never done the thing that I've wanted to do kind of wholly. So I'll give you an example, even from when I was a kid, I was an enormous tomboy, right? And I had a passion for soccer, like you wouldn't believe. And when I was a kid, there was no Australian team and there was no national league. So you had to follow the British football, right? So I used to stay up, watch the British football. Crystal Palace was my team, still was my team, because as an eight-year-old girl, it's like Barbie's fucking castle. And I'm like, oh my God, it's the Palace of Crystals. Um, And I was really into football, so I played a lot. And, you know, I really wanted to play competitively, but there was no women's football really to speak of in Oz either. So my parents, who rock, allowed me to join an all-boys league. So I was not only the only girl in my team, I was the only girl in the entire league. And I used to play kind of competitively from a young age just with the boys until kind of finally women's football started to kick in maybe when I was about 15 or 16 and there started to be teams and I could play for you know in in the in the girls team but I was really comfortable with that because I was doing what I love and I think that's just Mm -hmm. been my attitude you know I always wanted to join scouts not girl guides you know I went to like a super nerdy school um, but I was really passionate about art and so I just went and did Mm -hmm. my thing and I think that's kind of really served me well and I've learned how to to lean into being uncomfortable and I think in our roles Mm. and in the work that we do you have to lean into being uncomfortable to get really great work because otherwise you get work that's good so I think that kind of drive has really helped and then I think empathy again like not really fitting in a box getting a lot of flack for that as a kid and not really being able to describe myself in words because there were no words to kind of describe who I was as a kid and that has given me a lot of I think compassion or empathy for other people and just listening and and understanding people's points of view and I I, you know I always think a great creative is one thing but you can't really be a great creative until you're also really empathetic creative and you can understand your Mm -hmm. audience. This is something that Scott and I have talked about in our last chat and he and I've talked a little bit on the uh, on the side too that you know there is this urge for people young young creatives or people coming into the business to sort of very quickly get into leadership they want it they have these kind of ambitions to move into leadership quite quickly and you know I talked a little bit about this with him last time that I you know I was a copywriter for 14 years before I became you know even like sort of dipped my toe into creative direction Mm -hmm. I took a really long time to get into leadership and you though, went very quickly into senior positions. You start your career in 97. Five years later, you're head of design. Eight to head of art, glue. Then you're an ECD very quickly. You're you're leading people at a very early point in your career. So 
I mean, I, I think this, I think people would like to know, you know, what was that like for you? How do yeah, you get it, people to trust you early? In a way, I feel kind of really lucky, but the thing I realised early on I was best at was getting the best out of other people. You know, I mm-hmm. came through as a totally untrained artist. It took me a long time to get my first agency role because I had never learned any of it and it was all taught, it was all self-taught, you know. So I went from my first agency job in Sydney where I was a producer and, you know, it was a long time ago, but I was earning like decent money to literally coming to London to this great agency where, you know, my boss at the time said, you can finally be a designer. I've been trying to be a designer at this agency for years, but he was like, I only hire the best designers in the world. And finally he said, you can be a designer, but you have to be the most junior designer, take the most basic salary and come to London. And I'm like, fuck yeah, because I you know, was desperate to get to London anyway for, for other reasons. And um, so I guess that, that tenacity, but I, but I learned, as I said, quite quickly that actually I was a good designer. I've been a good creative, I hope a great creative, but the skills that I have that are my best skills are, the, the, are getting the best out of others and building a team. So I think mm-hmm. for me, it was really kind of natural. Yes, I can go in and I can do the work and I can build the work and I can make the work great. But, you know, if you're working with the best people in the world, it's even more exciting to me to see them be the best that they can be. So that's that's kind mm-hmm. of where I get my kicks. You know, I, I love I love yeah. being in there. I love being in the weeds. But when I see a smile on someone else's face, because I can see that they've just cracked something brilliantly under my direction and guidance or help or whatever you want to call it, that's the fun bit for me. <laughs> I was talking to Elise Nelson, who runs this organization called Vital Voices. It's a global network of women leaders, and they have this tagline, women lead differently, and the world mm-hmm. needs that leadership. And she talked to me about women's brains are wired differently. There's more greater connectivity between the left and right hemispheres, and also that women can hold many complex problems in their mind at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she also said that women, when they take up leadership, they think more about the community they they lead with the community in mind with the group in mind whereas yeah. men tend to lead you know their ambition is for themselves yeah. Uh, yeah whereas women have an ambition for a group and I think that's even as you just described what you where the where you get your kicks like that feels very true and also it feels like a kind of leadership that the industry is going to need and Really interestingly, so just to to divert a little bit, so we were talking about the Great British Diversity Experiment. So that was the single biggest practical experiment in whether and how diverse teams make better creative work. So Mm -hmm. uh, we had 250 people separated into 20 teams all working on a live brief for Tesco over 12 weeks with a proper research partner going in there, you know, uh, doing video diaries, understanding the ways of leadership. And if we sort of get to the end of those 12 weeks, the teams that have succeeded all had the same kind of leader. The teams that had broken apart, failed to cohere, had kind of fallen by the wayside, all had the same kind of leader. So each team had two mentors. And if you think all of those mentors gave their time and energy for free to this experiment, they're all passionate about diversity and inclusion. But their leadership style really dictated the success of those teams and the quality of the ideas. The teams that just lacked cohesion, fell apart, had that classic creative director alpha, I won't say alpha male, but that alpha way of leading. It is me, it's top down, it's what I say goes, I'm the one that's in control. That doesn't really work. The more diverse your teams are, the more difficult that is for work. It works really well when you've got cultural consensus and actually it's easy to come to an agreed place. 
And it's all very clean mm-hmm. and neat and fast. And that's why I think that still is the kind of dominant mode in, in our industry, in our roles. All mm-hmm. the teams that seeded, we called them clear enablers. They sort of built the teams from underneath and they created the environment where that messiness that is proper creativity could thrive without losing it and, and people getting aggressive with each other because they were able to bring people together to get to a consensus. And that idea was markedly better than the ideas mm. that came from the team because there's no place for diverse thinking when the person at the top is telling you what to think. So yeah. I think that was, yeah, that was the most super interesting thing that came from that experiment. And I, I do yeah. think it was interesting to see as well, and not talking about gender, but there were very, many more men in the first group and many more women in the second group, including quite a few women who I'd mentored through, she says, who'd been told over and over again, well, you're not CCO material because you're not like yeah. hard enough and you don't you don't have a strong enough voice. But actually their teams were the ones that performed the best. What gave you the idea to even start that experiment? We, we were talking about like, what could we do If the industry supposedly is so open to diverse thinking and diverse backgrounds and what have you, like, why is it that our industry is so bad at actually delivering it? Um, So we wanted to get to the bottom of, like, is it really a truth that diverse teams make better work, number one, and then do the research alongside to go, if it is the truth, what is getting in the way? Like, what, what, what are the problems and what are the things we can do to mitigate those problems so we can go back to the industry and say, well, actually, this is where you need to change your business to make diversity actually work. Well, I guess that's more inclusion and belonging work within your agency. It's such yeah. a brilliant idea just to try and figure out a proactive way that you can start that sort of a change. You know, you just hear a lot of people talking about these sorts of things, but never coming up with, well, what can we actually do to persuade people to change in a more positive direction? Yeah. So what then from that experiment How have you then been able to translate that into a work environment? So in terms of Grey London specifically, uh, we're putting a a load of really exciting stuff in place. First of all, you know, I mean, obviously hiring is one thing. So I'll put that to one side because I think there are a lot of things around hiring for diversity. Building something around inclusion and belonging is much harder. Number one, listening to every single person that is in the agency. So we have a really, that's actually a really exciting new process. We've worked with a brilliant change consultant to build a framework and a set of tools to allow the staff to suggest ways in which the agency could be better, more creative, more inclusive, put it into a system of people that kind of self-select themselves, depending on what the topic is. We call it hat grey and spit out after six to eight weeks a new idea for the agency that we can test and learn from. So in a way, I come from a digital background, right? And that is all about applied design thinking or Mm. applied creativity. And so it's putting that idea of design thinking actually into the business structure and change and it also means that as a leader I don't have to do it all myself (laughs) but it's brilliant to see something come in you know at the moment we're looking at like how do we create a a newsroom within the agency that is really going to help to deliver exciting ideas for our clients and that's happening and I don't need to be driving that and it's going to pop out in one or two weeks time with a really strong structured response on how we do that and we've got a number of other things that have gone in like uh, one is about you know uh, what we do socially and how we can use what we do socially to the benefit of creativity so that's a project that a bunch of people are working on a bunch of people are working on a project because people felt that, that you know we could be doing more with our briefings so that'll pop out in about six weeks time and we'll have a, a different briefing process that we'll try 
And I think looking at your business as a like a system that can be optimized through creativity is fun. Mm-hmm. I love what you said about that experiment with those two groups and the one that was a little bit more inclusive and more successful. Mm-hmm that you somehow managed to deal with the messiness. And I I reckon that's a really interesting point because that's probably why the other group uh, or the other management style is so dominant because it probably is less messy, I guess. Mm -hmm. So just just talk a little bit about the messiness and that you think the role that it plays in the creative process. Yeah, I think that I think that's really important. You know, creativity is a messy process. We know that from when we we're kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is all about play. It's all about trying things out. It's all about different points of view and kind of you know collaboration and negotiation and all of those things that you do as a group to get to an idea. Unfortunately, one of the things that our industry is terrible at is allowing the time for that play to happen. And because mm-hmm. the time for that play isn't allowed for, it means that to be a profitable, relatively successful agency doing relatively good work, it's much easier just to hire a whole lot of people that are the same because you have the same ideas, you appreciate yeah. the same ideas, you promote the same ideas, you award the same ideas. It's a bit of a circle, but it's faster and it's cheaper and it's a lot easier, particularly if you have people, whether they're internal to your agency or clients, for whom a little bit of chaos or or, or the creative process is scary, right? So when you when you say we're not at an idea yet, or we've got these things we're thinking of, and and just so you know what I mean, because they become mm-hmm. very they're very intangible because before they become tangible, you know, really clear client friendly mm-hmm. things, and there's a lot of discomfort in that process. So you know, one of the things I'm passionate about as well is like how do we make our businesses and those of our clients comfortable with what has been the same creative process since the beginning of time, right? Yeah, you kind of go. Great idea. Oh, this is all going to shit. Oh, my God, this is awful. Oh, my God, awful. I'm no good. Oh, no, hang on. There's that thing there. That's the right thing. Oh, this is brilliant. Job done. And that yeah. kind of curve is a little bit, it is uncomfortable for some people. I quite like it. So. Think, <laughs> me too. I think that, you know, different agencies and client relationships uh, have, you know, differing degrees of comfort with that discomfort, mm. right? Some places, yeah. you know, agent clients do not want to see at any point in the process you don't know what the answer is. Yeah. And I think, so, you know, you can get to a good idea like that, but you can't get to an absolutely mind-blowingly amazing idea like that, I don't think. No, yeah. I agree. I don't know if it's the same in Australia. I know that here, what they're calling it, the great resignation, people are leaving, like creatives especially, leaving the industry. You know, young creatives are leaving. And I think that's because, so you know, we're in a pandemic, obviously we've been in it for 18 months. That fun part, the play part, the chaos and the, and the fun of it, is not part of the job right now. You and I, I'm sure, like both have this deep memory of what it, the experience of being in a creative department. I'm holding on for that to come back. But I think we have to protect that future of that process. You know, we have to build for the future of the process so that we can hold young, diverse, creative people in the business. I mean, I know you are going back to the office. We're starting to go back from next month, but, you know, really forcing the environment to be able to have that play to happen. I think it's going to be so crucial to keeping people there. Yeah, and actually, uh, to to your point as well, because I know you're doing a lot around this, but encouraging people to come back to the office, because I think some people have completely forgotten about (laughs) what that amazing play and chaos can feel like. 
Not that we want people back every day because I think it's a benefit that people have now have the opportunity to be fully flexible. I've got a really young creative team. One lives in Glasgow and one lives in Wales. And it doesn't matter that they're there and, you know, they can afford to live there and what have you. And they'll come to London and, you know, engage sometimes, but not all the time. And maybe they'll move to London at some point. But I think it's given us a lot of benefits, but we've lost something Mm -hmm. as well. And that that kind of that play aspect. So when we're designing our new office at the moment and we're really trying to design it a lot around play and about being able to make stuff that you can't make on your own. I said this at the beginning when I was introducing you that I think that you're a beacon of optimism and positivity. I want to talk about that because even just talking about it now, like I'm, I feel energized by your optimism, you know, and I think, um, you know, across the screen, are you naturally optimistic? What keeps you in that headspace? I have always been, I think I used to call it like ruthlessly optimistic. It's just part of who I've always been. And I don't know why. I think like, to be honest, if you've ever met my mother, which neither of you have, you never know. You might have walked (laughs) past her in the, in Bris Vegas one. Are you a Brizzy girl as well? My grandparents were from Brizzy. So I used to spend all my summer holidays up there hanging out in Maya. (laughs) Maya Centre. You might have bought a pair of sunglasses off me at Sunglass Hut in the Maya (laughs) Centre. Well, my, uh, my very first job was actually working at the very first Westfield, which was in Hornsby in Sydney, actually. So I used to work oh, at Cups and Sally, slicing meat <laughs> in the mall. <laughs> yeah, if you've ever met my mum, like she's the most insanely positive and like deeply thoughtful person I think I've ever met. She's she's quite amazing. So I think I've just caught it from her, to be honest. <laughs> While we're talking about this, this has been a really hard time to be a leader. How have you stayed optimistic through it and what's keeping you optimistic about the business and about what's what happens yeah. now? I think honestly that comes down to the people I think the people keep me optimistic you know even just sitting on this call and I'm like oh you're so cool you know there's just so many great people in the world um I know that I'm sure there's loads of awful people as well but you know I just really enjoyed meeting the new people I'm working with and realizing how wonderful they are and like getting to know them and getting to know what they love so that for me has just kept me super yeah. optimistic. Nothing else. I mean, the, the summer weather in London is awful, so it's certainly not that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you want to see more of as we come out of these times? I mean, I would love to see a bit more kindness. You know, I think we forget kind of how hard and brutal it was for a lot of people and a lot of people in the industry. So I'd like to see a bit more kindness. I'd mm-hmm. like to see, like you said, a bit more play. A bit more experimentation. Like, I, I really don't want to go back to where we were just because we know it. I want to figure out what is going to make it better and how we're yeah. going to get to better work. And I would love to see us kind of, I don't know whether you're feeling it, the green shoots, but I just feel like the time is right for great work to start to happen again. And maybe there wasn't a lot of that around before the pandemic. And certainly, you know, the pandemic was really tough, but I feel like things have become very regimented. Everything was done in the same way. There was kind of a way of working. The ideas were all starting to feel very similar. Um, You know, there were all sorts of, whether it's financial or time pressures that were really taking over what is a really beautiful industry to be in. And I think Mm -hmm. we've got the opportunity now. I, I know people are kind of calling it the great reset, but we've got an opportunity just to not be so so afraid to experiment with other ways of doing things to make great work and, mm-hmm. and you are seeing that starting to appear I think in the industry so yeah. I feel like next year could be a good year. 
I think the more we talk about it and inspire each other to do that, and, and I think create and inspire other creative leaders to take up, you know, what you're doing, leadership in the industry, leadership in the business. Yeah. I think we can come out of it with a with a more creative industry. I, I would definitely agree. I think I became a problem solver in the last mm-hmm. eighteen months rather than a creative spirit, and yeah. I think I yeah. think I've made some pretty like logical decisions. Yeah, I was going to say it's because we've we've had to. Yeah, you know, that's been, um, the oxygen though has been kind of cut off from the creative experience. Yeah. So I think we have to get it back. Yeah, we have to get it back. We actually had our first uh, UK Creative Council yesterday, and we did it face to face, and <laughs> we in proper Australia style. Actually, I did it at my house, and we had a Barbie, amazing, and a, and a tinny, and, uh, <laughs> and did it and did it that way, and, and wrote everything down on paper, and it was just wonderful. It was the best. So, so for people who don't know the way that we work as an agency globally is really, you know, taking those best ideas and then the best people in both, you know, the agency, then the the region and then globally at our board, uh, we, we kind of look at all the, the best possible ideas and build together as a group what those ideas could look like and what they need to be even better. Um, and then those ideas kind of move up a- along the chain. And it was it was just so much fun. And everyone was really energised mm-hmm. and really contributed to each other's ideas in a way that you don't over Zoom. So, yeah, it was fun. Was there a particular shining idea that came out of that? that was. I can't, I can't talk about these yeah, things. There's one, there's, there's, one, there's one coming out in September. Is there anything as good as Pube Song? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's as good as, as, good as Pube Song. Hi, I'm a pubic hair. Yeah. I'm just a pube, and it's not fair. All I ever wished to be was just another hair. But when they got one look at me, the ruling from society was ew, not you. Oh, what's a curl to do? It seems like all the ads are showing perfect skin and shiny hair. But what about this other world inside your underwear? It's okay to see your name. when you first showed that and I was just like that is so fucking bonkers So, yeah, it's a great thing. I have to talk about it a lot. Who actually wrote it? Who wrote the lyrics? That was done by a copywriter in New York, worked with a songwriter. I don't know the songwriter. Yeah, it was a, yeah. the New York team. Really <laughs> yeah, amazing. Fun. Yeah. So, Laura, you're obviously very big into mentorship. So I'm just wondering... What would you say to anyone out there who's just sort of wondering about whether this is right for them and whether they're actually getting their creative juices flowing uh, in the job that they've got? What's the sort of advice that you can give to someone in that situation? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think, first of all, I would say just give it a go. You know, you've got nothing to lose by just giving it a go. And you only find out what you like and what you're good at by throwing yourself into something and seeing, not whether you sink or swim, but like whether you suck or your mind or whether you enjoy it or whether you hate it rather than over intellectualizing your entire career path from day one I didn't really expect to be here I didn't know what I wanted to do 
but I had this belief that has been really strong that's driven me. So I've just followed that inner vibe, I guess, that that inner belief to see where it, yeah. where it gets me rather than going, I'm going to be a CCO of an advertising agency. I didn't even know what that was when I started. I had no mm-hmm. idea. So I just kind of followed, followed the thing that I loved and then, you know, figured out what I was good at. And your, to your question about, you know, leadership, the thing I realized I was best at was leading a team of brilliant creative people to do the best work of their lives. So that's where I'm going to focus. But I wouldn't have necessarily thought that either when I started out. For some people, and you've got to be honest, it is a luxury to be able to do that. And I'm very lucky that I've been allowed to do that. Some people have to make much more pragmatic choices, mm. I'd say, if, if you can do. Um, and I would also just say reach out to the people that you want to work with or the people that inspire you. Uh, if someone says no to a 30-minute book crit, you know, it doesn't mean that they hate you. They might be really, really busy, but most good people will try to give you a little bit of time if they can or when they can, and you might have to wait a little while. I read somewhere where you suggested people do a portfolio review, which mm-hmm. I thought was a really disarming way to bother someone, you know, but because you, you're not <laughs> actually asking for a job you're just asking yeah. can you tell me what you think of my work you know when I started out so you know I kind of set, set up my own business when I was at university doing digital stuff you know working for agencies basically at the beginning of the web when no one knew how to cut and code stuff or design things properly for the internet and then there would be an eight like someone you know I won't mention any agency names because this is an Australian podcast but would you know would call me and say I've got this thing it's in <laughs> like photoshop how do I get this onto that thing like pointing at the the world wide web or or um how does the form work if someone puts information in where does it go to and it's like you need a database so i would like basically go in cut and code everything build it all by hand because there was no software at that time you had to do it all by hand sort everything out upload it do the back end sometimes with my brother who's an absolute genius so i kind of had my own business doing that so i was building things and being around agency stuff and doing creative stuff but I didn't know anything about agencies. And when I decided I wanted to really go and work at an agency, I used to teach at my old uni, COFA, which is now UNSW Art and Design. So I was teaching there whilst doing my master's, whilst also with another job. And uh, this guy came in to speak to my first year students called Simon Waterfall, from, uh, who's also a DNA D president. And he, you know, came in, I think he wore a wedding dress. He had a blue mohawk. He was showing the coolest digital work ever. This is maybe 1997. So it was pretty basic stuff now. But at the time, <laughs> it was like, wow, I've never seen anything like it. And they were the coolest <laughs> agency in the world. And they're about to open a Sydney office. And I thought, like, I want to go and work for that agency. So I spoke to him and said, uh, you know, I want to come and be a designer. He's like, well, you've never studied design and I only hire the best designers in the world. But every time I come to Sydney while I'm opening my office, I'll give you some time and I'll talk through your portfolio. And in the meantime, you need to learn this and this and this. And so I'd go off and like practice and learn stuff and do more stuff. And he would always give me, even if it was in a pub for half an hour whilst he was doing whatever, he would always give me like half an hour to talk about my portfolio And then finally he said, there is a job in Sydney. It's not as a designer. You're still not good enough to be a designer, Um, but I can give you a job as a producer. And I was like, yep, okay, I'm going to take that job. I'll take that job and then I'll be around the best designers in the world and then I'm going to learn more about design. And then it was finally, you know, I was hoping to come to London and he said, well, I have a design job in London that you can have, but it is like the most basic design job. Do you want to drop everything and come over? And I was like, yep, okay. And, you know, I was over in 
it took me about 12 weeks to pack everything up and move to London um, and start my career in design. Was that like an intentional thing about zeroing in on him? Did you feel like he was someone who would be able to mentor you? He was so generous in giving of his time and has always been. So whenever I've had questions about what I should be doing, should I be moving jobs? I've relied on him very much to, yeah. to give me, he's, he's a little bit of a, like an old soul. So he's a good person to talk to. I would love to ask the question that Scott asked me in our chat, which is, would you ever go back to Australia? You know what? That is a really good question. Um, quite possibly. Uh, I'm always open to possibilities. And actually, before I took the role at Grey, I was looking at another role back home. But, you know, I think when the time is right, it, it's still home for me in mm-hmm. a weird way. Yeah. You know, I've been here 20 years, like... All my best mates are still there and I feel like my people in a way are still there, like my lovely community that I had my 20s with or whatever, you know, they're still my crew. So Mm. quite possibly, I think the work would be really different, but it's, you know, Mm -hmm. never say never. I love it. It's nice, isn't it, to have, especially in this moment and and the jobs get so big and you take on, the you know, this world of responsibility. It's nice to sort of mentally know that you have that home base that you can return to. And it gives you a lot of confidence, right? Like it gives you a lot of confidence and a fearlessness about doing what you're doing out in the world because you know that you have that. Exactly. And I think that's the really important thing when I was saying that that I feel very privileged that I'm in a position where things are stable and you can make brave choices and you can throw yourself into things without worrying too much about the consequences. And I think part of that is just knowing that at the end of the day, there is some beautiful bush and animals and mates. And even if the world went to shit, I could tuck myself yeah. back there and it would still be all right. Yeah, we're so lucky to have that, yeah. in my, you know, just in our minds while the world is going crazy. We're so lucky to have it. <laughs> You two are like our female Olympic team because from a country that's so stereotypically masculine, Mm -hmm. you've both achieved so much. And it's kind of weird that women from Australia have done so well, don't you think? You know what? I think it's a lot easier for us probably to do well overseas than it is back home in a way. You're right. It is a really masculine, it's a very macho culture. I'm sure it was the same for you, Jess, but you had to fight really, really hard for things to move for you Mm -hmm. in Oz. And actually, you run into misogyny everywhere, right? But coming to London, suddenly you're pushing and things are moving. You're like pushing as hard as what you were pushing back home. (laughs) Things actually moving for you. It's been a real, I'd say, a benefit because it's also kind of pretty shit to have to put up with as a young creative. But um, you do get a certain toughness to you. (laughs) Probably the timing of our careers, having that grounded toughness, and mm-hmm. being able to hang with things that w- weren't easy, but also entering a moment in the industry where it be all of a sudden became very important to be a female creative leader, then everything mm-hmm. kind of opens up for you. And so just the, yeah. I think that careers yeah. have been timed yeah. well for that. Yeah. And we certainly got taught to give really clear feedback pretty early on. <laughs> Yeah. which I, I guess probably in New York it's different but in the UK it's, it, there's a whole different way of giving feedback here which took me ages to get my head around because it's all very like nice and and soft and kind of passive aggressive rather than just like oh sorry made it shit do it again <laughs> <laughs> just did you have any other questions that you wanted to ask Laura I'm just so glad that everybody at home got to hear Laura's story and to get into her mind and she's like one of my heroes of the business and has been a huge like a battery source for me 
since I've known her. So thank you for talking to us today. I hope everyone at home enjoys it as much as I have to hear your story from you. Honestly, Laura, your enthusiasm and optimism is definitely infectious. And yes, please come home. You'd be more than welcome. And I think (laughs) the industry would benefit enormously from, you know, just having you guys around. So when the time is right and when you can get a flight back, we look forward to it. Oh, man, I know. (laughs) know That's going to be. See you in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Hey, so first up, Justine, thank you so much yes. for for your two visits with us. And Laura, next time it's over to you. So I Absolutely. hope I hope you get your thinking cap on. I have already. I've got I've got a nice little short list in my in my head for you. <laughs> good, good, good. Do you know? And I think you're going to come up with someone really surprising. But we'll leave that up to you. So Laura, thank you yes. very much for your time today. No workers, as we say. beautiful thanks for downloading the creative relay podcast brought to you by smith and weston go to our website at thecreativerelay.com where you'll find a whole lot more info and extra content about the podcasts and all our guests